Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. From band member at the age of 17 to a successful personal manager of many musicians and celebrities to working on transforming entertainment and media, John Roz has had a golden thread through his career that has really lent itself to the Midas touch he possesses in bringing consciousness to everything he undertakes. John is a branding and marketing PR consultant and strategist and a transformational entertainment and media pioneer and expert. With a wonderful group of friends, including Jim Carrey and Eckhart Tolle, John has developed the Homeboy Project, which takes gang members out of LA gangs and teaches them transcendental meditation and has helped over 30,000 gang members to date. So find out the ingredients that truly create peace, creative potential in community, and beautiful possibilities for humanity, all on this episode of The Spark. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. You've done so many different things and worn so many different hats. I remember the first conversation I had with you, finding out that you had at one time worked with Madonna. You've been involved with so many different musicians on the board of the Grammys. How did you get interested in all these different things? You know, when I was a kid from about eight or nine years old until 17 years old, I played in rock bands in the Midwest in Flint, Michigan. And we were pretty popular, even though I was young. The guys I played with were older, but we were pretty popular in the Midwest. And we opened for a lot of national touring acts. So as a kid, I I played, you know, I was on stage in front of five or 10,000 people. And it was kind of a mind blower for me. But I did realize as a part of the journey I was about to take around that time, spirituality, I did realize that around 17, I'm probably never going to be a rock star. (laughs) So I decided to pursue what was really of great interest to me at that time, which was spirituality meditation. And consequently, I quit performing, quit playing. But when I moved to California several years later, that entertainment bug bit me again. And before I knew it, I was working with actor Ned Beatty and magician Doug Henning. And I ended up, after my time with Doug and and Ned, I ended up working with a personal manager named Dolores Robinson. And we managed Martin Sheen and LeVar Burton and Emilio Estevez and some amazing people. And when I actually left Robinson Management, formed my own company and got back into the music business as a manager. So (laughs) that's great. Who did you end up managing in the music business? I managed Al Stewart, you know, who's famous for Time Passages and Year of the Cat and several other hits. And I managed Taste of Honey, who had a hit song called Boogie Oogie Oogie. And I managed several kind of famous R&B artists, L.J. Reynolds of The Dramatics and, and various others. Also managed Billy Preston, The Fifth Beatle, which was quite interesting Later on, I carried on working with musicians, but doing marketing and PR work. So I worked with Madonna and Kenny Loggins and Turtle Island String Quartet and Kitaro and, and, you know, many other Dead Can Dance, many other wonderful uh, musical groups. So did you keep your spirituality and your quest on your spiritual journey throughout that whole time? Did. You know, as a matter of fact, for me, I first set foot on the path in 1967, and so it became an organizing feature in my life. Everything I did, actually there was one exception, but everything I did revolved around my spirituality. I did not want to separate my spirituality from anything I did professionally. So as I said, with the exception of one career change, I think when we spoke on the phone yesterday, you were saying something about 
how when you began this, it was missing just one element and you had a realization around that. Uh, that was actually Gate, which came later. And uh, Gate is actually, it was a nonprofit organization I founded and it came several years. Like I think I started visioneering in 1988, 89, around there. Gate didn't come until 2009, but the genesis of Gate actually was in 1967. And from 1967 until 2009, there were milestones, though I couldn't perceive them as such while they were happening. It was only when I looked back that I saw, oh yes, this led to this, this led to this, that there was some creative intelligence at work guiding me, bringing me to these newer expressions, creative expressions, career expressions. So this notion of GATE, which is an acronym that stands for Global Alliance for Transformational Entertainment, you know, the seeds for that started, like I said, in 67, and there were milestones. But around 2000, 2005, the idea of GATE kind of popped into my head, fully formed the name, the acronym, Global Alliance for Transformational Entertainment, and even the, the vision of GATE, which was transforming the world by transforming entertainment and media. It came full blown. And I pushed it away because at that time in the business, I thought, oh, I don't know if anybody's going to really get this or support it but it kept persisting. And one day I was sitting with Eckhart Tolle, who was a friend and a, and a client. I mentioned to him, I keep having this persistent idea about transforming entertainment and it's called gate and so on. And I keep resisting it. And he basically said, you know, why resist? Just do it. And it kind of hit me. His words hit me very, very powerfully. And I said, okay, and I asked him, I said, if I do an event to inaugurate GATE, will you speak at the event and talk about consciousness? Because consciousness is central to, the to all creative expressions. And he said he would do it. Well, knowing that Eckhart would do it, I went to another friend of mine and business associate, Jim Carrey, the actor. And I had introduced Jim and Eckhart years before. And I told Jim, look, I'm going to found this nonprofit organization and Eckert has agreed to be an honorary co-founder and will speak at the event. Jim, would you also be an honorary co-founder and would you co-host the event with me? And he said, yes. So I knew with Eckhart and Jim bookending me that people would take me more seriously. Long story short, we had our inaugural event in early June of 2009 at Fox studios uh, on the lot there. And we had an auditorium that, that seated 500 people. We filled every seat and we turned away almost 1600 people. And we turned away a lot of kind of famous celebrities who couldn't get in. And that's how gate launched. And we've been going ever since then. We did events from 2009 to 2015, but in 15, I started getting tired of doing these events for thousands of people started doing smaller events. We had little salons at Jim Carrey's home and we would invite like Dr. Joe Dispenza to come. He was one of my clients and we would invite him to come and speak. And then we'd invite maybe 30 or 40 entertainment movers and shakers and they would come and we'd hear Joe speak and we'd have a conversation and have some food together and such. So gate has continued on and we're, we're now in the process of reinventing gate and I discovered something important that the vision of gate was incomplete and it always felt a little incomplete to me. The stated vision, as I mentioned earlier, was transforming the world by transforming entertainment and media. But I changed, I added two words several years later, transforming the world by transforming entertainment and media dot, dot, dot from within. It had to have that inner orientation that rootedness, if you will, in consciousness, because, you know, we're all talking about, we want to change this and we want to change that. And we know we can't change other people. There are very few things we have any kind of control over. So I thought, you know what, the best thing to do is to help people grow from within. And if we do that, the nature of relationships, 
the nature of creative expression will change in and of itself. Each of those will be imbued with that growth of consciousness. So that's become kind of the new mantle of gate. What have you noticed in your own personal journey as you have opened up to that exact reality? I'm hearing this creative golden thread that's gone through your life, this going within first. Tell me a little bit about that and the effect on your life. Well, this teacher that I studied with, you know, many, many moons ago, talked about the principle of the highest first. Jesus also spoke about it when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven within, and all else will be added unto thee. To me, that's a statement that expresses the vital role, the primary role of consciousness in transforming our lives personally, our communities, our world at large. So to me, whatever we do, that role of consciousness or quote-unquote spirituality in my opinion, should always be front and center, should always be first. For me personally, I didn't ask for it. I had an experience when I was in 1967, which I didn't understand at the time, and I didn't feel that I could talk with my parents, my friends, my minister, my teachers. I didn't feel there was anybody I could talk with about it until after the surge began around that time, And I went through a period where I was into the occult, you know, metaphysics and stuff. And then I was into the prosperity consciousness thing, think and grow rich. And neither of those were it until one day um, when I was a kid, I was working in a head shop, a boutique called touch. And I worked in a record shop there and down the hall from that record shop was a little bookstore called middle earth books. And one day I moseyed into middle earth books The owner invited me in. He saw me peeking around the corner of the doorway, invited me in and said, you into this stuff? And it's like, I don't know. And he said, well, here, here's the Tao Te Ching. Here's Be Here Now. Here's Carlos Castaneda. Here's Alan Watts. Here's all of these different books. And as I devoured them, I realized this is what I'm looking for. It was more of an Eastern approach to spirituality and thus began the journey to find meditation and yoga, hatha yoga, and all kinds of other things. It sounds like you started actually fairly young on this journey. A lot of people don't come to this until they're in their 40s or 50s, because so often we deal with all these chaotic things in our world. And right now with the coronavirus and all this stuff going on, how do you feel like that going within serves you? Well, You know, it's all I know because I did start young and consequently I acclimated to that experience early on. And the the only thing I can surmise is life would not have been as good as it is perhaps for me had I not stumbled upon that or was brought to that, whatever the case might be early on. But what I do know is there are, with the growth of consciousness, that there are certain experiences one has. And, you know, for example, I notice that when there is a lot of chaos around me, I still remain very, very calm and peaceful inside. I did an interview not long ago, and the interviewer asked me, so are you happy all the time? And it's, it's a reasonable question, I suppose, but I ended up saying it's an irrelevant question. Because happiness is like any other emotion. Emotions come and go. It's like the weather. But to me, what is more important is that state or that condition of inner peace. When one is truly experiencing inner peace, a lot of the vicissitudes of life don't affect us in the same way. You notice them. They're there. Your mind or your emotions may have some little dance with them, some little interaction with them but they don't overtake, they don't overshadow that state of inner peace. The mind remains calm, the emotions remain calm. And there's, I guess I would say, a level of clarity that is unmistakable. It is a feature 
of human awareness to enjoy this level of clarity beyond the ordinary kind of clarity one has when one maybe discovers something new and, oh, I understand that. It's kind of a transcendental clarity. And that has been with me uh, for a long time. And the interesting thing about this experience is that it doesn't mean you don't get upset. It doesn't mean that there aren't occasional expressions of anger or sadness or, you know, sorrow. No, those things can still be there. Like I said, they just are not powerful enough to overtake that inner peace, which is really self, which is really the highest self. But those things are still there. That's just part of our human condition. And you also notice that there's less judgment about these kinds of things. There's greater freedom in experiencing them and not allowing them to overtake you. So this is kind of what I know in my own life, and I just know that it has made me uh, a more effective person. I know that that greater awareness has allowed me to take on many more things than I might have considered to take on when I was younger and so forth. And I also notice that there's a vitality and a creative vitality that is unmistakable and that continues to grow, and it breeds this enthusiasm and this kind of level of inspiration that is remarkable and that enables you to really appreciate life to a greater and greater extent. And the cool thing about appreciation is that it also spawns gratitude. So it's like, oh, I... I'm really enjoying this jar of rice over here. Look at the smooth edges of the jar and the, the beautiful color of the rice. And oh, thank you so much for creating that, whoever that was. So I love that connection between appreciation and, and gratitude. Well, I can see where people would think that you're always happy. When you're in that mode of gratitude, you're at a higher vibration and you just have kind of that contagious energy to you, which I'm sure emanates out of being in this place. And I really appreciate you sharing that distinction because I think so many people have a misconception that once we attain this place of peace within us, then life ceases to be difficult or we never have a an angry moment or like you were sharing, a sad moment. And yet what we're able to do from that place of peace and calm within us is we can observe those emotions as they happen to us instead of defining ourselves by them. Last week, I think it was, I was feeling kind of sad and I attempted to pinpoint what might the source of that sadness be. And I said, is it this? No. Is it that? No. I couldn't locate a specific cause of that sadness. I just stayed with it. I just rode with it. I just danced with it. But I did conclude at one point that I think many of us, who are even a little bit awake, probably experience some cosmic sorrow, some cosmic sadness that is the result of the collective experiencing some kind of negativity. And we're kind of processing it with everybody. And I don't know if that's true or not. I just have a feeling it is. But the point being, I simply allowed myself to be with that sadness in that state of peace, if you will. And sometimes it can get quite overwhelming and it may not necessarily be sadness. It just might be you're having maybe some flash of anger. You're having some fear, which, you know, I still feel fear at times. I feel some fear right now with a lot of other people around not just the coronavirus, but our government and the condition of the world and certainly the environment. There are a lot of things that could cause one to feel great fear these days. But even with that, it doesn't diminish, essentially speaking, who I am, who you are, who we are. The fullness of that, we are in it. And the more and more we come to connect with it, recognize it, embrace it, live it, 
then all of these things that are going on about us don't have great impact. Like I said, it's passing weather. It too will pass. Or as George Harrison, you know, name of his album, All Things Must Pass. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and I got the sense as you were speaking too about how it's like you create this room as you go within, you're creating this room then for, I, I call them downloads, but it's this creative energy that's going through you, that's helping to inspire you and create these amazing programs like the Visioneering and Gate. And I know you've worked on so many other projects. Can you talk a little bit about the Homeboy Project? So one morning I get a phone call from Jim and it was pretty early for Jim. (laughs) And he asked me if I knew about this guy G and I'm like, what? And he said, gee, I think they call him G-Dog. And it took me a moment, but I said, you, you, Father Greg Boyle. He said, yes. And Jim told me he had just watched the night before a documentary about Father Greg. And I had met Father Greg a couple of years before. But Jim said to me, do you think we could go and meet him? And I said, yeah, sure. So I called Father Greg's assistant, and I mentioned that Jim Carrey would like to meet Father Greg, and could we come down? And he said, yes, of course. And we set a time when we went down there and it was a huge event. I mean, just Jim showing up because everybody, all the homies love Jim. And so we arrived and they had a parking space for us and they were all crowding around and Jim was taking selfies and saying hello. And we had a lovely, lovely time at Homeboy. And we ate lunch with Father Greg and just had a great conversation. And when we left, on the way back, Jim was driving and he said, you know, I want to do something for them. What can I give to them? Should I just give cash? Should I buy a couple of trucks for the bakery? What should I do? And I thought all of 10 seconds and said, Jim, let's set up a meditation course. Let's give them the gift that keeps on giving. Let's give them that state of inner peace because they're all traumatized. You know, they all have had lives that most of us can't simply imagine uh, the level of trauma. And Jim thought that was a great idea. Well, it took me two years to put the program together, but we finally launched it. I became a teacher of meditation of transcendental meditation in 1976. So I was the lead teacher and I brought in a few other teachers to work with me and we proceeded to teach transcendental meditation to the homies there. And I will just quickly share with you a story. I taught a young man meditation and during the instruction toward the end of the personal instruction, they have their first meditation. And I asked at the end of that meditation, I asked the student open your eyes and I say it very quietly. And this young man didn't open his eyes. And I repeated the instruction numerous times, and he didn't open his eyes. He simply didn't open his eyes. And I started thinking, what's going on? Did I, did I do something? You know, I, I knew I didn't, but it, but it turns out he, he finally did open his eyes. And after a couple of minutes, he said, John, I have never experienced that place before, that sense of peace. This is the first time in my life that I have felt at peace and and my mind quieted down. And I was so moved by that. He didn't want to open his eyes because he didn't want to leave the meditative state. And that's kind of typical when you have that level of trauma and then somebody just whispers some instructions to you and all of a sudden your mind gets quiet and you feel some peace inside. And it's a psychophysiological experience. It's an amazing experience. So Jim and I did that program at Homeboy. It was really successful. We're actually in the process of editing a little documentary about it right now called Homeboy Rising. And I hope it'll be finished in the next few months. For people that don't know what the Homeboy Project is about, can you describe that? So Homeboy Industries is located in downtown Los Angeles, and it's the largest gang exiting program in the world. Just had its 30-year anniversary last year. Father Greg and his team have helped 
somewhere between 30 and 40,000 gang members leave gang life and to become productive citizens. Of course, there's recidivism and some of them fall back into gang life. But I will tell you, I mean, some of my dear, dear friends at Homeboy are former gang members, formerly incarcerated for some pretty heavy crimes. And you would not know that about them if you just encountered them today because the story that they are today is very different than the story that they once thought they were. And you can go to Homeboy. You don't have to pay anything. You can get tattoo removal. You can get your GED. You can get counseling therapy. There's a drug program. There's Alcoholics Anonymous. There's meditation. There's yoga. There's so many different things you can do. And the cool thing about Homeboy is there are several vertical businesses. There's a bakery, there's merchandising, there's Homegirl Cafe, there's actually a, a home, home, Homeboy Cafe at LAX, there's one in City Hall. They have a recycling program where they recycle electronics for companies. All of these wonderful businesses, solar panels, and they're all staffed by homies. So it shows that you can take people who were formerly incarcerated, gang affiliated, and you can give them a job. As Father Greg has always said, give them a job, but firstly, give them love. They'll drop the guns. And that's exactly what happens. And I will tell you, when I walk into Homeboy, I feel proud of those folks. And I'm, I'm on the verge of tears at every moment. To me, they are transformed individuals. And to be perfectly honest, in some ways, I feel more comfortable with them than I do with my spiritual circle of friends because a lot of us still have pretenses. And the homies, they dropped all the pretenses. The trauma has seasoned them in ways that I think only suffering can. So they're real and authentic to the core. You know, they're raw. What powerful stories. I know. You can't walk through the doors of Homeboy without, like, you, you know when you walk in there that there's a level of reality that, frankly, many of us are not accustomed to, and you just have to be natural. You can't come in there with any pretense. You can't come in there with any mightier-than-thou attitude. They will crush you. Not them personally, but just the environment. You know, it doesn't allow that. Well, that in and of itself is such a spiritual environment. It's like you just have to show up as your essence there, you know, no BS. Well said, well said. And, you know, Father Greg, I, I mean, obviously I never met <laughs> St. Francis of Assisi, but I've read books and I, I love his approach to life. And Father Greg to me is the closest thing I, I know of, of, of a St. Francis of Assisi. I have watched Father Greg in action working with the homies and the speeches. In fact, I encourage your listeners to Google Father Greg Boyle on YouTube and watch some of his videos and his books. I love his book, Tattoos on the Hearts. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. So anyway, that's, I'm being a fan right now. <laughs> There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I do want to talk to you about the David Lynch Graduate School of Cinematic Arts. I was actually one of the co-founders and I was the executive director of, of the school. Joanna Plasky, who's on the board of the David Lynch Foundation, called me one day and invited me to meet with the heads of the program. It, it was just starting up, basically, and invited me to join. So even though the program was at Maharishi International University in Fairfield, Iowa, I ended up traveling almost on a monthly basis to Fairfield 
to participate. You know, I would, I would lecture about film marketing because that's one of my specialties, marketing films and various other aspects of the entertainment business. And I would work with the students, help them with their projects and such. And we, in addition to the film production program, there is a screenwriting program now the last, I don't know, two or three years headed by Dorothy Rompalski, who's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And the screenwriting program is going really, really well. The film production program is on a hiatus right now. It's kind of re-envisioning itself, I understand. I'm no longer the executive director. I'm an advisor. I'm a consultant. I did bring uh, film writer-director Peter Farrelly, who did Green Book and many other films. I brought him into the program as a senior advisor, and we did that work together. It was really lovely. So it's a good program. And it's consciousness-based. So you learn about consciousness and the growth and expansion of consciousness while you're learning about filmmaking and screenwriting. So that maybe filmmaking and screenwriting becomes a portal, if you will, or it's a conduit for that to be expressed on the screen? Exactly right. If you look at David Lynch films, many people say, how could this man supposedly meditate for 35 years? How can he create some of the imagery and storylines that he does. Some people think they're maybe not transformational, but you know, I, I think transformation is found everywhere, whether it's in the darkness or in the light, you know, there is transformation. Transformation pervades life, whether it's in its dark phase or its so-called light phase. And I, I think it's a totality. And as you and I discussed, anytime you separate the parts from the whole, then there's dysfunction generally. But I think you can have like a darker type film, but if it's connected, even through intention, via intention, then transformation can be present, even if we don't necessarily grok it, if our minds don't understand it, it doesn't mean it isn't there. Well, and even when you spoke about the homeboys, you know, I do think out of some of our darkest experiences, and here is all this trauma that people have been through, but oftentimes it's through that, that people's gifts truly emerge. And something that could have been there before is cultivated or created and comes forth. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we produced at Homeboy, we produced an event at UCLA Royce Hall, which is a big auditorium. I know it seats 2,000 or 2,500 people. And we sold it out. And the two keynote speakers were Pema Children and Father Greg Boyle. And most of the people who were there were actually there for Pema. They didn't know of Father Greg until that night. And when they left, they were all believers. And I will tell you, you know, Pema would speak and then Father Greg would speak. Pema is a beautiful being, a beautiful soul. But in sharing the stage with Father Greg, it became clear that Pema learned what she's learned through the mind. Certainly there's a lot of heart there, but there is a lot of mental understanding. When Father Greg spoke, it was clear that he learned through suffering, through the suffering of others. And the words that flowed from intellectual understanding versus direct experience, there was a marked difference. It's not that one was better than the other. They're both necessary. But the expressions that Father Greg offered touched people very differently. You could feel when Pema spoke, there was kind of an intellectual processing going on. And there was some heart there, too. When Father Greg spoke, there was a heartful processing with some intellectual combined, you know, different approaches, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, stunning. We're going to do some more. I don't know exactly when I'm, I'm working in Europe right now. And I do want to do at least one more here in LA, but one big one, I should say a big event, you know, for several thousand people, but with the new gate, as we're envisioning it, there will be many events on, of a smaller scale because the new purpose of gate is to work with what I call blooming creative artists. So these are people, they're not lay people and they're not established celebrities. They're people who are still learning, who are still growing and evolving in their creative expression. And they need help. They need help navigating personal and professional challenges that all creative artists face today. 
And so that is my kind of, I guess my final mission in life is to work with the blooming creative artists to help them become everything that they're capable of becoming as artists. Which is just beautiful, John. I love that because I think that really is where the need is. It's being open to that whole thing where it's helping people that that rising tide floats all ships. That's what I'm hearing from you. You're helping to rise the tide. That's what I want to do. And I believe by extension that that these creative artists, as they become more and more powerful in their expressions, they imbue their work with greater and greater consciousness. We respond to that consciousness as viewers, as listeners, as readers, as participants. And it is that element of consciousness in all forms of creative expression, whether it's fine art or music or filmmaking or dance or poetry, etc., It is that element of consciousness when activated that always appeals to us and causes us to like whatever we like. Consciousness is always the nexus point of bringing us to a deeper sense of who we are in artistic expression. You're writing a book for creative artists? Yeah. So, you know, for years, people have asked me, when are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? And I honestly, I don't really have anything to say. If it happens one day, fine. If it doesn't, that's fine. However, I was preparing to speak at a film festival a couple of years ago. And in the process of that preparation, three ideas just popped out of me for books. And I danced around those ideas for several weeks. And I realized, wow, I do like these ideas. And I decided to work on the first idea first. And the book got a little bit of a long title. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But it's called The Creative Artist's Royal Path to Personal Fulfillment and Career Success. So when I was working with that title, I didn't want to just call it The Artist's because many people think when they think of an artist, they think of a fine artist. And to me, an artist is a filmmaker, um, a psychologist, an author, a musician, etc. So I wanted to qualify it a little bit and call it creative artist. And then one of the paths of yoga, I think it's Raja yoga. I'm not sure, but one of the paths of yoga when translated into English is the Royal path. So, you know, to me being a creative artist in the world, is a yogic path and because it starts from within and it moves outside. So I like the creative artist royal path and I always want to express the inner first and then the outer. So that's why I talk about personal fulfillment, code words for inner peace, code words for consciousness, and then career success. Success of your career is based upon the degree to which you can connect inside with consciousness. And the way you do that is through the Royal path, which has many facets to it. So that's the book. And it's meant to help artists navigate personal professional challenges today. But there's also one feature, which I'm not ready to talk about yet, but I, I believe I've stumbled upon the nexus point between the inner and the outer of creative artists. And, you know, in, in essence, it has to do with what they do during the day. So, I'm collecting source materials now. I've developed a list of interviewees. I'm getting ready to start those interviews. I'll transcribe them. I'm going to do about 200 interviews. And I've collected source materials in this area for 40 years. So I've got a lot that I want to share with people. Well, you've worked in so many different creative realms, John. You have the experience and the wisdom to be able to do all these interviews and then bring that and share that. What a phenomenal gift. It it is a gift. And I I won't go so far, and I know this sounds immodest, but I won't go so far as to say wisdom, but I know there's knowledge there. And, you know, maybe, maybe there's some wisdom too. Hopefully I do pray for that, that, that whatever I shared, that it really be, for the highest purpose for everybody that has to be, I think anytime you create something, you have to have that prayer that it includes everyone's highest good at what's best for everybody and for the planet. 
we definitely need that energy here now. And what a gift to be bringing that through. Then when you talk about higher revelation, what does that mean? Well, so last year I worked on a film called Free Trip to Egypt. And during the promotion of that film, I was trying to think of what else can we do to help promote this film? And one doorway that was open to us was music. And I thought, even though the film is done, we can't add music to it. We can actually write a song for the film and let it be its own creative expression talking about what's in the film. So I called a songwriting friend of mine, Jason Caravan. He called his friend, Glenn Phillips, who has the band The Wet Sprocket. And I asked them, we commissioned them to write a song. And they ended up writing a song that was stunningly beautiful and appropriate for the movie. And long story short, we produced that song. We did a video of it. We created a pre-film program, 20 minutes long, that had that song as its capstone. And then we had other musicians. And as people were coming into 500 theaters around the country, they saw that program. But during the recording of that song, and we had the producer works with Eric Clapton and Bob Dylan and all these folks. And we used Jackson Brown's guitar player and Ben Montench, the keyboard player for Tom Petty's band played keyboards and Fiona Apple's bass player played and Elvis Costello's drummer played. It was a great band and they, they just nailed the song. During the creation of that song, I, I had a realization how wonderful it would be to take these musicians and the producer, the whole team that was there, Jason Carabao, everybody. And what if we offered our services to social change organizations to create music for their cause, for a meeting, a large meeting, or something to share with their stakeholders and so forth. And so I, I happened to be reading a book that night that had a quote from Beethoven talking about music as a higher revelation. And I said, that's it. That's what we're going to do. We're going to create these beautiful expressions, these higher revelations of sound for social change organizations. So we did one for this film. We did one for this homeless organization. We're hopefully going to do one for Homeboy that will be used in the documentary. And we're going to start offering that as a service. Because most people can't afford these musicians or even find these musicians to work with. We've got the whole team together and they all want to do it just to give back because they've been so successful. It's like, yeah, this is a good thing. If we can help other organizations and we just come in once in a while and cut a song or two, that's great. We'll do it. So excited. <laughs> yes. How cool is that? I mean, that is so awesome. And talk about that flow of creative energy and sharing your gift with the world. That is just phenomenal. John, as we're wrapping up, if there was an essential message that you wanted to communicate today, what would that be? Again, at the risk of sounding like a cliche, I have found that many times when I have accused an expression of being a cliche, I thought it was trite. Turns out it was true. And I, I couldn't appreciate that till I was a little older, maybe a little more seasoned, a little wiser. So all of a sudden, I, I don't feel that way toward any expression any longer. And so with that said, as a preamble, I think these days it's important for all of us to remain in our so-called authentic self and to do whatever we can do to cultivate quiet mind and peaceful heart and to cultivate our connections with one another. Uh, they get lost in busyness and I think it's easy for all of us to kind of fall into certain habits, fall into certain patterns, psychological, emotional, physical, even that don't always serve our best and highest interests. And I think these are simple prescriptions, if you will, but I think they're very, very impactful and very powerful. And I, I think that the, the capstone there of course is gratitude. And I know for me, as much as possible, I sometimes don't feel like it, or I sometimes just forget to do it. But as soon as I wake up in the morning, it, one of my first prayers, if you will, is, is, is one of gratitude. And you know, sometimes I tell myself, okay, you're awake, do this now. 
but my other part of me is saying, I don't want to do it right now. I don't feel like doing it right now. Okay, fine. I, I just say, okay, no problem. You're just not in that space for whatever reason. But I think the more we can do to cultivate that true interconnection and that authentic connection with others, there are a lot of people who have very complex understandings of these things and everybody's got a prescription, everybody's a counselor in, in one way, shape or form. I don't like to do that anymore unless I'm asked because I, I know that it kind of doesn't mean anything if the person's not really in that space to make changes and they really have to come from each of us from within. That's it. Yeah. The, the person has to be open to receive it, like you're saying, and to be in that space to cultivate it within themselves. But sometimes just being open to the possibility of it, I think we start creating the room to perhaps experience it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I've come full circle a couple times with all, all the different phases that we all kind of go through. And the last version or incarnation of that was with non-dual understanding or philosophy. But now even that has kind of passed. Now I find that the experience of daily living is replete with opportunities to show who we are as consciousness in our behaviors and in our interactions and what have you. And if we don't get that right, none of the high-minded thinking, whether it's non-dual philosophy or any other type of philosophy or understanding that's available in tens of thousands of books through Amazon or metaphysical bookstores, doesn't mean a lot anymore. I, I agree with that, though, and I really appreciate that perspective because I think it's intellectual exercises and it can help open some doorways. But the biggest doorway is just dropping within our own hearts. And that truly, I, I really resonate with you, John, that eventually it's like our life becomes our meditation. And so we are living that. We are that level of consciousness. I think it was Sam Beasley has the book, Your Life is Your Prayer. And really, that's what it's about. It's about being present to this moment and then this moment, always the present moment and connecting and living and loving the best that we can. You know, I remember I read The Power of Now maybe a month before it came out. Somebody sent me a galley copy. And I remember I couldn't put the book down. I read it twice within a week. I was just so blown away. And then I met Eckhart not long after that. And I adored his simple, straightforward, direct expression of truth. I still do. I'm not in touch with Eckhart anymore so much, but I love his expressions and I still feel they're kind of still the leading edge of where people are growing into what they're becoming. There are so many things that I got out of this interview. I'm finding it hard to focus on just a few. I loved John saying when he said, that the success of your career is based upon the degree to which you could connect inside with consciousness. John knew from early on that his spirituality and having a sense of being in touch with the divine within him was the important thread, and it wove its way throughout his entire career. He really talked about the importance of cultivating a quiet mind and peaceful heart, so we too can cultivate our connections with ourself, the divine, and one another. Connections first begin with ourselves, and as we quiet our mind and go within, then from that place, we're able to reach back out in a more resourced and resilient way. I loved his sense too of the importance of having a prayer of gratitude, or just allowing ourselves to be in gratitude. I also think that that's something people are really finding out right now, the importance of being in gratitude for the simple things in our lives. And oftentimes it's these simple things that we took for granted that are so meaningful now, like being able to take a walk with friends or sit down and share a cup of coffee or even to play a game together as a family. So we have to remember that the things that we can be grateful for right now are that we have this technology that allows us to see each other face to face, even when we can't be together in person, where we can actually feel connected through social media or FaceTime. 
I know that we're missing a lot of those times right now. So let's utilize this opportunity that John shared with us to start doing some of this work within. And as we do, as we develop a mindfulness or meditation practice, it actually and truly infuses the sense of calm and peace, this place of resiliency that no matter what is going on outside of our lives, we can retain that sense of calm. We can come back to it. So why not do it right now while we are in this shelter in place? We can utilize these practices. Not only will it help us to stay in the present moment and deal with our current circumstances, we will emerge from this place so much better off. I'm just sending out a big hug and lots of love to all of you out there. We may be distant physically, but in our hearts, we are all connected. And we're seeing more of that in our world now more than ever, the different ways that we can connect. So reach in and reach out. We're gonna make it through this together. And we can create from this place in our hearts a more connected humanity and a better world for us all. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO FM.